0: Today's episode is brought to you by restaurant.com. With restaurant.com, you can save at thousands of restaurants across the country with just a few clicks. Their dining deals range from $5 to $100, never expire, and cost you a fraction of the face value. Dinner has never been easier with restaurant.com, used for dine-in, takeout, or delivery. Restaurant.com is offering our listeners 50% off their next purchase by going to www restaurant.com slash podcast. That's www.restaurant.com slash podcast for 50% off your next purchase. Restaurant.com, the best deal every meal. meal. Yes. Ah, shit. Things are fucking falling off the table. This is the, the power bank oh. part of the laptop where everything kind of plugs in together.
1: But Joe Biden's our next president. Yes.
0: I was just telling Stephanie, this might be the only time I ever want to turn on Fox News just so uh, they have to, I can watch them announce it. It's <laughs> our first like you would just post it on Facebook our first woman vice president our first black black vice president and our first black woman vice president yes. so it is a trifecta of historical times
1: yes a very momentous occasion for americans and we should be proud of the progress we are making
0: i believe so but i mean not everybody believes it but Oh well, what are you going to do? But we're pretty happy today. Yeah. I know a lot of people out it's there probably exciting. aren't. A, a, a little less than half the country out there right now isn't too happy about it. But yeah,
1: yeah. they'll get over it.
0: Over, over half the country was pissed off four years ago,
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> and now we're happy and now, again. We're, and now
0: we're pretty happy. So we'll yes. we'll see what happens once the civil war starts. <laughs> Speaking of politics, welcome to open a fucking book. Yes, this is not a political podcast, but. We're going to get into politics at some point over the next, you know, few weeks as we cover who we're covering. I'm Kevin.
1: I'm Stephanie.
0: And welcome aboard. And let me tell you, need to hold on to your hats for this one. Yeah. Something else. So the subject of this four-part series was an American author and journalist known best for being one of the founders of the, quote, New journalism. He was an almost lifelong lover of booze, drugs, and women. A doctor by title only. Not a practicing doctor, but a technical. Paid for it.
1: Ah, one of those.
0: Yeah. And even though he was almost constantly putting out articles and books, he was almost always struggling with money woes. Uh, didn't stop him from living the celebrity lifestyle, even if he didn't actually like being a celebrity. He became so famous and ingrained in the American culture that by the end of his life, he had not one, but two celebrity-studded funerals. The second of which, unlike anything you've probably ever seen or heard of, and we will get into that on the fourth episode, Pretty nuts. Uh, A cartoon strip that mirrored him in almost every way. He is also one of the only authors to be portrayed in two separate movies by two of the biggest movie superstars of all time. One I consider a, a superstar, as in Johnny Depp. The other, I feel, transcends movie superstardom. Into pure world icon, Bill fucking Murray.
1: BFM is pretty awesome.
0: He wrote about the presidential campaigns in 1972 and 1976. I was not aware of this when I started uh, researching him, so I thought it was funny happenstance, I suppose, that we... Just got done with the presidential election, and now we're going to cover somebody who covered the presidential campaign. uh, Two presidential campaigns. Uh, He covered a fishing tournament, Hawaiian foot race, a sports scene around an Air Force base, sometimes under names like Raul Duke or Gene Skinner. But he's probably best known for two of his books, Hell's Angels and the one that would be his masterwork, and would be turned into a movie based on his coverage of a motorcycle race and a drug conference, Fear and Loathing, in Las Vegas. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you maybe the biggest character and prankster we've ever covered, so hold on, because it's going to get weird. This is the life of Hunter S. Thompson.
1: Yay! There you go.
0: (laughs) Now, our references for this uh, series are Outlaw Journalist, The Life and Times of Hunter S. Thompson by William McKean, and Gonzo, The Life of Hunter S. Thompson, an oral biography by Jan S. Wiener and Corey Seymour. Now, the differences in these books, you're going to get a lot of information about Hunter from both of these books. You get more straight info about Hunter from Outlaw Journalist because it is a typical straight uh, biography. Gonzo is, so Jan, you'll meet him in in the series later on. He's a big part of Hunter's life. Him and Corey Seymour pretty much just go around and they interview almost anybody that had anything to do with Hunter S. Thompson. And they get the biggest weirdest craziest stories directly from them and it's pretty much just a catalog of interviews and stories so you don't get exactly all the dates and and times that you would like and uh, you don't see a lot from hunter's viewpoint because it's being told from people around him so while outlaw journalist gets really into his diaries and into his his paper and interviews that he had Gonzo has nothing like that in it. It's all based on the interviews themselves that are in there. And l- honestly, you get more information from outlaw journalists, but Gonzo is a lot more fun to read because these stories that they will tell you are fucking insane. This was a madman. He was he was a madman. We so- like the madman though. They they're more interesting now. There's a few things you're gonna you're gonna form an opinion about Hunter, and you're gonna have because he's he's multiple people. Uh, he a lot of people said he's really sweet, uh, very southern, gentlemanly, and you see that a lot of times. Uh, shy, but he turns into this other person sometimes, almost like a, a bipolar, not quite bipolar, almost. Multiple personalities, where he could turn into this completely different person.
1: DID, dissociative identity disorder.
0: I don't know if it's so far along that we would actually label it with anything, honestly. Okay,
1: then maybe he acts differently around different people.
0: It's pretty much what it is. He acts a certain way if he likes you, if you're a friend, if you're a confidant, he treats you a certain way, sometimes worse than if you're just uh, somebody else. He, he has huge mood swings. So you kind of like him when you're like you you're listening to some of the stories that he pulls when he's out. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to give anything away right now, but there are some stories where you'd be like, God damn it, I love this motherfucker. But then when you see him at home with his eventual wife and the way he treats her, and uh, there's physical and emotional and mental and verbal abuse, then you're like, God damn it, I want to like you, but you... And, You know, he grows up in the South, so there's a race issue, which really kills it, too. It's like, if you just stop with the fucking racist shit. Um, Not as far gone as, like, H.P. Lovecraft, but there's parts where it's, come on. There's the N-word is used a few times in both books that obviously will not use, but it really, anytime racist stuff comes up, it kind of kills it for me. And it's, it's a shame because he seems like a lot of fun, but that's really a sticking point. You know, you can't be racist and a good person. It, you can't do both. It's right. impossible to do both. But let's get into it. So Hunter Stockton Thompson was born July 18, 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky. The first child to Virginia Davis Ray Thompson and the second child of Jack Robert Thompson. As we always do, let's get to know the family a little bit before we move on. Jack was the son of John D. Thompson and Corey Wheeler. I actually used to work with a guy named Corey Wheeler. This is a woman, though. Tom, uh, Corey Wheeler Thompson in Horse Cave, Kentucky on September fourth, 1893, and moved with his three brothers and widowed mother to Louisville after his father died in uh, December In 1911, Jack spent a few years in the Appalachian Mountains selling insurance until his first wife died in 1923, about two years after giving birth to their only child, Jack Jr. Jack left Jack Jr. in the care of his mother-in-law in Greenup, Kentucky, and moved back to Louisville working for First Kentucky Fire Insurance. About a decade later, in 1934... Jack met Virginia Ray. Now, Virginia Ray was born in 1908 in Springfield, Kentucky, to Presley Stockton Ray and Lucille Hunter Ray. Presley was a Louisville businessman and came from a background of small-scale prosperity. The Rays manufactured carriages until cars took over the market and Presley went into insurance. The family was able to send Virginia to the University of Michigan for two years, but was unable to support her all the way through graduation. Jack courted Virginia for a year before they married. Virginia was 27. Jack was 42.
1: Quite the age gap there.
0: Yeah. Two years later, they had Hunter. Now, Hunter was what you would call a difficult child. Uh, cocky, charming, very handsome and self assured. He showed no jealousy when his brother Davidson was born in nineteen thirty nine, which is kind of weird. You're the firstborn. You're the well, you're the only one there. Jack Jr. wasn't around. So you're the only one there and all of a sudden there's this new baby and you show no jealousy. That's kinda of, most babies or most kids will show uh resentment.
1: When I brought home my second born, my oldest immediately smacked him in the face. <laughs> yeah. But the, the day I brought him home. That I like, mean that that's a baby brother yeah. smack yeah. him in the face.
0: But uh Hunter showed no jealousy, nothing. He was oh, okay, the new one. That's fine. The family jumped from rental house to rental house until about nineteen forty three when Jack was finally able to put a down payment on a house at twenty four thirty seven Randall Avenue in the heart of the Highlands, Louisville's first suburb. It was that weird spot between the uh, well-to-dos and the back-breaking labor class. Uh, They survived, never went hungry, but they're far from rich and well-off, ebbing from middle to lower middle class. Now, because of his magnetic personality and ease at making friends, this middle-class kid became the leader of a group of kids that many of whom were from some of the most powerful families in Louisville. Uh, You'll see later on that a lot of his friends get out of trouble because of who their parents are. Hunter doesn't have that privilege.
1: You know, it would have been nice to know we could have gone to Louisville earlier in the day to visit some of those areas when we went to that Coheed concert.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose, but hindsight's 20. 20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, not long after the move, Hunter started first grade at I.N. Bloom Elementary School in Highland. It was here where Hunter met new kid in school, Walter Kagi. Now, when they were uh, set together in class and they bonded over the fact that both of them were whipped by their fathers with razor straps, the kind, not, not, yeah, the kind that you sharpen, the leather yeah, strap I know. you sharpen, yeah. Hunter said, quote, My dad likes to whip me in the schnoozle. They both exploded into laughter. 20 minutes after meeting Hunter, Walter was already in trouble. He also met Clifford Duke Rice, who would become a lifelong friend. Now, sports were a huge part of the Thompson household, not to mention the whole of Louisville, and baseball was one of the only things Hunter and his father had in common. Sitting by his father's chair, listening to the St. Louis Cardinals on KMOX, which still do today,
1: That's our team!
0: Or the news, or watching him take swigs of whiskey and throw racial slurs around, at this time it was mostly at the Japanese for taking all the big star baseball players away when they signed up for military service, is where Hunter got the majority of his love for sports, liquor, and racist jokes. Like, um, what his friend Gerald Terrell, his father, was assigned to China and he had to move there for a year. After he came back, it was like it was like he never left. It was just oh, he came back. He was with the group again. But Hunter remembered that he was gone, and graced him with a new nickname, Ching. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Don't laugh. It's uh, not funny. Uh, it's 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 ridiculous because I don't think he has that name forever. But Ching. Okay. Now, like I had said before, Hunter was the unquestionable leader of this merry group of troublemakers, which is exactly what they were. It was Hunter, Walter, Duke, Debbie Caston, Gerald Terrell, and Neville Blakemore. And they would start every day at Hunter's house to decide how to spend their day. Sometimes basketball, sometimes baseball, sometimes war. In Hunter's mind, the Civil War was still going on, and he would be known to wear a Confederate hat and challenge new kids with their alliances. Quote, Are you a Yank or a Reb? And if you gave the wrong answer, a fistfight would ensue. Hunter loves to fight. Loves to fight. He loves to start fights. Now, uh, not just the Civil War, though. All kids were well-versed in the World War and they would proceed to turn the town and the woods that surrounded the town into their own battlefield, throwing rocks, bloodying foreheads, and irritating parents. Many of the neighborhood parents did not like or trust Hunter Thompson, obviously, along with many of the teachers. Hunter had this way of making others loyal to him and like him for seemingly no other reason than him just being his I don't take anyone's shit self. But most other kids wanted to be friends with him because they feared him and hoped that friendship would keep them safe. He had an unnormally low voice and a deep brow, which made him look even more menacing than he already was. Now, soon his mischief stretched from messing with the neighborhood kids to vandalism and practical jokes on strangers. Each fall, homeowners would rake leaves into the gutters to be burned. Hunter would take it upon himself to accelerate this process. (laughs) There was apparently a way to make a match shooter with clothespins, rubber bands, and strike-anywhere matches. Hunter would ride his bike up and down the street, shooting these matches into the pile of leaves, just going from one side of the street to the other, just shooting matches into the leaves. The embers would start to burn, and about 15 minutes later, after he was long gone... The piles would burst into flames just one after another down the street. The fire department would need to be called and the police started looking for the local leaf arsonist. (laughs) He would go to Bear Grass Creek with some friends where there just happened to be a few African-American kids who lived, uh, lived by there. And he would sit and shoot them with a BB gun until the black kids would chase them back into a friend's house. He was going out of his way to start these little mini race wars. What a dick! <laughs> they'd shoot him, and then the kid, they'd jump across the creek, and they'd chase them back to a friend's house, and then they'd go to leave, and they'd come out, and they'd do it again, and they just started getting into fights, and yeah, it was, it was, it was the the, the white kids against the black kids, and they just beat the fuck out of each other all the time.
1: I hope he got his ass beat a lot. Oh,
0: I'm sure he did. I'm sure he got his ass handed to him plenty of times. Most of his pranks went comparatively unnoticed and unpunished until he was nine. Nine. And the (sighs) FBI came knocking at the front door. Little fucking imp. He was the prime suspect in the destruction of a mailbox, a federal offense that came with a five-year prison sentence. He claimed he was old enough to read the warning on the side of the mailbox about vandalism, but before anyone else could speak, Jack belted out, quote, How do you know he's not blind or a moron? (laughs) Hunter played along and had gotten away with the destruction, which he obviously had done. He didn't play along with the blind part. He played along with the moron part. He was smart. He picked up on it very quickly. But from that day forward, he would be the prime suspect, number one, for any petty crimes that happened in the neighborhood. But it also gave him a false sense of immunity, that he would never be caught for any of the pranks or hijinks he would pull as as he grew. Immunity that would not stay with him. Now, apparently, with this mailbox, he had set up a series of pulleys and ropes to tip the mailbox over into the street, just as one of the adults who lived in the neighborhood that he hated was passing by. And, boom, just destroyed the fucking mailbox. So... He's he's very ingenious on the shit that he does.
1: Just uh, can you imagine what he'd be doing for pranks if he was a child in today's times?
0: Oh, okay. I'm I'm sure he'd be breaking into people's bank bank accounts and online and I'm yeah I'm I don't want to think about it. Now that's not to say that Hunter and the gang didn't know when to behave as well. Even though he'd get away with pretty much anything, he felt they did know when to cool it down. On several occasions, instead of sports or war, they would get on the bus or on their bikes and head to the library. They would be rowdy, loud, playing grab-ass outside, but once they entered the building, they were quiet, respectable, and polite. They would read for a few hours in silence and then leave and go back to being rowdy and loud. But that was Hunter. He loved to read. Other kids would go home at the end of the day and sleep or listen to the radio. Hunter would go home and read. Apparently, His room was completely lined with books. And on the floor, there was a giant illustration of the gates of hell, drawn by Hunter, covered by an area rug. He wouldn't have to be questioned too much to show it off.
1: So, he must have prayed... uh, uh, He's a child of Satan. (laughs) He's
0: he's Dennis the fucking Menace. I imagine he has a neighbor named Mr. Wilson. On the fourth (sighs) way. Wade fourth grade Walter got a hold of a mimeograph machine and started a neighborhood newspaper called the Southern Star all of the friends worked on it but even though Walter started it and was the editor the meetings took place at Hunter's house they covered everything from Hunter's Civil War question fist fights to Walter's dog vomiting on their shoes to neighborhood baseball game results The paper earned a small spotlight feature in the Courier Journal, which was impressed that Keggy paid his staff between one and three cents a story. Hunter earned his first byline at age 11 in a sports story featuring himself. (laughs) (laughs) Which is going to be a...
1: Common theme? Yes. (laughs) He's a little
0: sociopath? Uh, he's, he's a narcissist and everything he writes pretty much for the rest of his life, if it doesn't center around him, he doesn't give a shit about it. But that's what makes his writing as good as it is, because he will start a whole new type of journalism. But we'll get to that later. Now, in 1949, Hunter's youngest brother, James, was born. Virginia was 41, and Jack was 53. Now, along with Duke Rice and Gerald Terrell, Hunter founded the Hawks Athletic Club at I.N. Bloom Elementary to organize competitions with other clubs and neighborhood teams in the hopes that it would put him in line for the prestigious Castlewood Athletic Club that would lead to the Anthenaeum Literary Agency, or the ALA. But they were only accessible through invitation only. Couldn't buy your way in, couldn't apply. They had to come to you and invite you to join. So, start Start your own athletics club and see what happens. It worked. By the time Hunter was in sixth grade, He was invited to Castlewood, played baseball in a church-sponsored league, and was the best at his, his age that anyone had ever seen. Unfortunately, he was born with one leg slightly longer than the other, a developmental defect that would only get worse as he grew and would put a damper on his athletic ambitions. When he was a little kid, he was an amazing basketball and baseball player. And football. But at some point, everybody else hit a growth spurt, and he didn't, so he was shorter. Eventually, he did hit a growth spurt. He actually turns into a very large man when he's grown. But that leg deformity gets worse, and it gives him a very distinct limp. So you could tell Hunter was coming whenever you saw him just because of the limp. And it really kind of killed because he wanted to play baseball. But it really killed that because he wasn't going to be able to with this deformity so
1: i guess back then they didn't have the shoe inserts to make them level.
0: i guess my my old librarian at my high school was one of my best friend's mothers um she had that one leg was shorter than the other and she had one of those uh shoes but it was still a pretty significant limp that she had so i don't know how much even one of those shoes would have would have helped because your knees bend at different you know heights because no matter if the shoe, if your feet are on the ground, your knees still aren't level, so your knees are going to bend different, so you're still going to have that weird kind of limp.
1: Yeah. So now it's something you need at birth. With I think
0: it's something you need surgery for really if you really want to fix it, which they can like break your leg and extend it a little bit and put pins in it till the bones grow together and then break it again and then extend it and put pins. In it. If it's if it's a vast difference that i don't know what they can do about it now along with uh, being in these uh this athletic club it was like a fraternity and when you came with fraternities came with hazing and hunter loved to haze and rush pledges first for hawks then for castlewood one time at the library he read about epilepsy and taught his friend henry how to mimic a grand ball seizure Hunter would watch as Henry would flop and writhe on the floor of Knopper's Pharmacy while customers were screaming, giving him an apple time to shoplift while the attention was drawn away. <laughs> as she covers her face with her hands.
1: My younger brother had epilepsy. That's fucked up.
0: He does it quite a bit. Oh my gosh. Uh They would do the same type of thing with fits, as he says. Inside public places, especially restaurants, where Hunter would tell one of the pledges to throw a fit, and they would have to kick and scream and roll around until either an ambulance or the police were called. Then they would all run off laughing before the authorities would get there. They'd be like, "Hey, uh, bet you can't throw a fit," and that was okay. Now you got to throw a fit. And then once people started getting uppity, they'd all fucking take. It. It's pretty fucking ingenious. This is the type of stuff that I would have loved. Until he, you, you know, except for all the racist shit.
1: And he's like, what, 11 or 12?
0: Uh, yeah, he's a teenager. He's a preteen into teenager. This is all kind of fit. This is all kind of runs throughout his whole childhood, all this stuff that he's doing. He, like, never really that grows can... up. This is He hasn't turned 16 yet. He's like, yeah, but he's like preteen, early teenager stuff, right, when this is happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's our younger, he's our youngest kids' age. That's fucked up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's quite, he's something. Now, for quite a while, Jack had been getting more and more tired, and his muscles had ached. Uh, That's where kind of the downer part of the story comes up, and there's always part of the story that's kind of a downer. Uh, He didn't want to take, he didn't want the attention and suffered in silence until just before the 4th of July in 1952, when he suddenly died from Myasthenia gravis, a rare disease that attacks the immune system. The family was overwhelmed. Virginia had to get a job at the public library, and she moved uh, his mother into the house to help, who the kids called Mimo. Their Aunt Liz and their Aunt Lee also helped out. This was when Hunter's resentment for his mother for going to work developed. Life at the home changed. Virginia would get home from work and open a bottle.
1: That's one thing I can say. Even when I worked a lot, I, I still didn't come home and drink.
0: Yeah, she got into it pretty bad. Uh, sometimes getting so bad that her that the, the grandmother would have to help her to bed. Hunter hated her for drinking, even though he himself was drinking at a very early age. Jack was seemingly the only one keeping Hunter in check. And now that he was gone, no one could really handle him at his worst. Uh he he adores his grandmother he loves mimo more than maybe more than he loves his own mother probably he adores his grandmother and he loves his mom but he res- i mean he like I said he resents her for having to go to work and not being able to be there and spend time dad was dead and now everything was landed on her and it's not fair for her to have to take on all that but that's just kind of what happened he
1: he doesn't see it that way
0: yeah he's
1: young he i i get it
0: once Hunter got his driver's license, this was a new type of freedom. He was able to start dating girls. Hunter loves girls, and girls love Hunter. Uh, he knew how to be polite and respectable. He was good-looking, tall, funny, and fun. He dated a lot of girls, one of which was Susan Hasselman. Her parents were members of the prestigious Owl uh, Owl Creek Country Club that Hunter had always fantasized about living in. Her parents were not fans and forbade her from seeing him. So, of course, they met in secret. Because that's what happened when you forbid a kid from seeing somebody. From dating someone, they'd do it anyway. You just don't know about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, uh, you'd be like, if you know he's this type of fuck-up, why would you give him the keys to the car? But apparently, Hunter had built his own, like, makeshift car out of just parts he found. And it terrified Virginia to the part where he was going to drive, whether she let him drive her car or not. But if he drove this thing that he built, he would die or he would kill somebody else. So she just gave him the keys to the car uh, to make sure he didn't you know kill himself.
1: So it's either kill yourself in a safe car or kill yourself in a dangerous car.
0: Uh, it was, uh, he had much better chance of not dying or killing anybody else in a regular car. This other thing was just a yeah.
1: death trap. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I yeah. get it.
0: They got dune buggy without all the safety stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, he would use the car to pull more pranks or street theaters, what they like to be called. Uh, one of which was a fake kidnapping in front of the Bard Theater. Basically, the group of friends got one of their own to stand in the theater ticket line, and then they pulled up and grabbed him and made a big seat, stuffed him into the car while he was screaming, and then took off down the street like a shot. The Courier Journal the next morning read, Suspected Kidnapping at Bard Theater. (laughs) It made it all the way to the fucking paper. In fact, there was a judge who lived across the street who saw it, and he was the one who called the paper. They wanted to start an investigation onto kidnappings that were going on in the <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, he was getting big into his drinking at this time. Uh, whiskey was his vice of choice, uh, whether he bought it, bribed it from people, or straight up stole it. He was also starting to show that he was comfortable in almost any situation. He was a strictly middle-class kid, but he was hanging out with the kids of people that ran the city, the multimillionaires of Louisville, like lifelong friend Porter Bibb, uh, who will come into play you know, later on, on and on and on again, as the story goes. But he would also take these friends to places in Louisville where they would never think to go, or probably didn't even know existed. Uh, the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, like black nightclubs and dangerous bars. Uh, or you got to remember that this is the early fifties. White people don't just go walking into the black nightclubs on the wrong side of the street, uh, or wrong side of the tracks in a southern city. Hunter loved it because he loved he loved making other he loved seeing other people be uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, he loved instigating. Yes.
0: Yeah, other people being uncomfortable and not knowing what to do just gave him just this pure pleasure. that he just thrived off of. Now, Hunter went to Atherton High School for a short time, but then he was transferred to Mail High. It was a mystery to most of what had happened, but apparently it was for his own safety. The story goes that the Atherton football team beat him up pretty badly after he criticized the player's performance. Uh, But mail was really where Hunter wanted to be anyway. They sent their graduates to Ivy League schools. Uh, This was also where the ALA was started and where most of its members came from. Uh, Some of Hunter's friends were already in the society. Jimmy Noonan, who we'll see later on, Porter Bibb, and maybe the most uppity, pretentious, upper-class, fucking dipshit middle uh, uh name i've ever heard in my life ralston steenrod
1: <laughs> that's like a name from uh a family guy or whatever yes uh bottom tooth
0: or oh under um god i can't remember his name
1: yeah i can't it's bottom tooth
0: though. is it bottom tooth i think so uh...
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
0: It is where he would meet another lifelong pr- friend, Paul Seminin, another another one of his privileged kids of Louisville, at one of the society's night meetings. Paul and Hunter would hang out all the time and talk about the authors and books they loved and why. Hunter loved Fitzgerald and Hemingway and he used to sit and type out their works word for word. And When Paul asked him why the fuck he would do that, he simply said, he liked the feel of how it is to write those words. He, lo- The Great Gatsby is his favorite book ever. He loves Fitzgerald, and he loves Hemingway, but he loves Hemingway mostly for his lifestyle. But those are his two icons to him. Now, at the uh, Athenaeum Saturday Night Meetings, They would write original stories or essays and read their works in front of the whole group and be critiqued. Then they would leave and raise hell. But the results of the writings through the year would end up becoming The Spectator, the yearbook slash literary magazine that they put out. It was where Hunter was first published and won third prize for his essay called Open letter to the youth of our nation, which begins Young people of America, awake from your slumber of indolence and hearken to the call of the future. Do you realize that you are rapidly becoming a doomed generation? Oh, ignorant youth, the world is not a joyous place. The time has come for you to dispense with the frivolous pleasures of childhood and get down to honest toil until you are 65. And then, and only then, can you relax and collect your social security and live happily until the time of your death. And he signed it, Fearfully and disgustedly yours, John J. Righteous Hypocrite. His published piece was called Security, where he laid out a coherent Hunter Thompson philosophy. After an attack on conformity, Hunter asked, Who is the happier man? He who has braved the storm of life and lived? Or he who has stayed securely on the shore and merely existed. It's a philosophy he would tie to his own life until the very end. There was another feature in The Spectator called The Lineup, which was just a jokey questionnaire that Hunter was unable to ever take even remotely seriously. In 1953, his questionnaire looked like this Alias? Marlon Brando. Usually found? Innocent. Favorite saying, why was I fined? Reminds us of, Dennis the Menace. Ambition, be serious. Future occupation, undertaker. And in 1954, it was, reminds us of Al Capone. Usually found, cutting classes. Favorite saying, Norvin did it. Norvin was the guy who got, he got to do most things like, Norvin, I bet you can't steal her purse, or Norvin, I bet you can't throw a fit. Ambition? Peace officer. (laughs) Now, at this point, the pranks really started to escalate into real vandalism and actual crimes. He trashed a filling station that had the police escort him from mail high in handcuffs. He and some of his wealthy friends were busted Uh, for buying booze for underage kids. Uh, They all went to jail, but only Hunter stayed. He had a building record and didn't have a powerful family. Once he even robbed a collection box at a church. He shot a gun through the floor of his own room and blew it into the family's china cabinet downstairs. Uh, He was growing wilder by the day, it seemed. His Friday night parties usually stretched through early Monday morning while his mother sat home and worried. And the other parents were getting mad that Hunter was getting their sons in trouble, even though all of them were troublemakers. They carried guns in their cars and would drive around shooting at houses and mailboxes and garbage cans. Uh, They would shoplift, break into liquor stores, get hotel rooms, and sneak out the windows so they didn't have to pay. But then things got a little too serious. A simple night out with friends pulling pranks and fucking around that would change Hunter's life and outlook on the justice system forever. June nineteen fifty five, about two weeks before he was to graduate from high school, Neville Black- Blakemore, Sam Stallings, a kid that they used to, who used to get them booze, and Ralston Steenrod and Hunter were driving around Cherokee Park. Now there are two versions of the story. One goes that Sam saw a car parked with a couple in another car parked and making out. Sam told them he wanted to go bum a cigarette from them and asked to stop for a second. When he came back, instead of a cigarette, he had taken the guy's wallet. Now, the other story goes that all of them walked over to the car with two couples and threatened them with a gun, and Hunter said allegedly that if they didn't hand over their cash, he would rape one of the girls. Whichever it was, the driver of the mugged car got the license plate of their car and notified the police. They were picked up shortly after. Now the other three came from prominent families in the city. Calls were made, parents came, Sam, Neville, Ralston walked out. Hunter had a record and no one to call. The others had done plenty in their days, too, but their parents were who they were. His mother was a librarian and alcoholic with no money for bail. He was left all alone, his friends left him, and that would stick with him forever. The fact that he was stuck in jail and they weren't simply because their families were important and his wasn't. He was sentenced to 60 days in jail. Before the judge could give the sentence, though, one of the girls from the car stood up in Hunter's defense. This is how charming this motherfucker was. She and her friends had gotten to know Hunter during jail visit hours and appeared in court to testify on his behalf. More evidence of his charismatic personality. Virginia was also there pleading for her son, quote, please don't send him to jail. The judge replied to all of them, quote, what do you want me to do? Give him a medal? Steenrod's father even asked the judge to put off jail time and require him to enlist. The judge said no to all. Sixty days it was. Hunter didn't graduate with his class and was voted out of the Anthonyum Society. He wrote his mother every day in jail. Sadness turned to anger. Quote, The police lie. Injustice is rampant. He got a month knocked off his sentence for good behavior, of all things. He could be good when he needed or wanted to be. He just usually didn't need or want to. The judge let him know that until he was 21, he would be under an all-watching eye. He got a job as a delivery truck driver for a furniture store in town and almost immediately backed the truck into the showroom window. (laughs) The cops came and Hunter decided that maybe it was time for the military. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing, and keeping that beard as painless as possible over time the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves not just because their customers have had enormous success with them but because they have worked for centuries they use 100% natural ingredients never test on animals and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee from the day and night oils the shampoos and conditioners all the way to the ingenious beard straightener they have everything you need to tame that face fur and I use them my beard has never looked felt, or smelled better? Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now, and feast your face! Uh, the Army made him wait, but the Air Force took him on the spot. In late summer 1955, he arrived at Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, drunk, and impressed his drill sergeants, his drill sergeant by vomiting on his shoes during roll call. What? <laughs> now, it's that the Air Force only takes the brightest and the best? <laughs> I was going
1: to... You have to be intelligent.
0: Oh, okay. So let's get one thing straight right now. Hunter S. Thompson is incredibly intelligent he later on um friends of his will say he might not be the smartest man i know but he's definitely the smartest man i know well hunter s thompson is incredibly intelligent
1: okay so that's probably why the year force took him. yes because you have to test
0: and he does the- he, he, he tests and he tests um well he
1: no i mean for the military yeah you have to take the uh ad-
0: well you got to remember this is the this is the mid 50s so things are different then
1: i don't know if you had to test back then but- world
0: war 2 just got over so they're oh, taking yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, so, so things are a lot different but when it comes to um he takes the radio technician's test and he scores the highest they've ever had in the air force to that time and he said, well, it was easy. You, uh, you just use common sense. It's not hard. And not by not knowing literally anything about how radio, uh, being a radio technician, he got the best score they had ever seen. And they decided that he would be a great electronics tech because of it. Quote, but I want to be a pilot. Why else would I join the goddamn Air Force? <laughs> the Air Force responded, quote, you'll make an excellent electrician. They weren't going to put him in a fucking plane.
1: Yeah. Whenever I was going to join the Air Force and I tested for, I tested really high in linguistics and mathematics. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'll go to linguistics if I can do German. I want to, because I had already taken two years of German in high school and I had remembered a lot of German at the time. Right. And they're like, oh, well, you don't get to pick the language.
0: Yeah. No, they, yeah, that's the military. They they tell you what you're going to learn.
1: Yeah. And I was like, oh. Then
0: no, but you could have learned. I mean, could have been any other language. I mean, you could have learned something great. You don't know.
1: No, they. It would have been a Middle Eastern language. They okay. already told me, and I was like, nah, I don't want to learn a Middle Eastern language. Hmm.
0: To each their own, I suppose. Yeah. So he was sent to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, which is just a few miles away from us. Mm-hmm. Same place that our good friend William S. Burroughs was stationed at for a short amount of time before he got his honorable discharge, which is bullshit. But he was in Illinois for a miserable six months. He would pass his free time either drinking or writing home to family and friends. Letter letter writing became a way to pass time in jail. He would carry the habit his whole life. He writes some doozies of letters later on. Holy fuck. Some of these letters. Jesus Christ. Now, Hunter was lucky enough to have a squadron commander that would give him chance after chance, because he saw the potential in him, Hunter quickly earned a reputation as an attitude case. He went through military intelligence training and graduated from the program. and was able to pull a seemingly plum posting at Elgin Air Force Base in Florida on the Panhandle in the summer of '56. You lived down in that area. Have you ever heard of that?
1: Yes, I didn't live too far
0: away from it. Uh, well, that's two places he he was stationed that you don't live that you didn't live too far away from. Yeah, they wanted to give him security clearance, and he told them no, because that would be a horrible idea.
1: I guess he was really smart. He was, yeah.
0: (laughs) Because he he, he passed the military intelligence with flying colors, and they wanted to give him high classified security clearance, and he said, that's a horrible idea. I'm not, I don't want that. You're not going to give that to me. Because he he wasn't the type that believed in um, country first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, he still hated the military, and this plum posting didn't calm his mood. One night, driving back to base, drinking a bottle of gin, he made the last-minute decision that instead of stopping the truck, saluting, and showing his badge, he would slow down to just slow enough to give him a good shot. They threw the bottle over the checkpoint airman, sending it into the guardhouse, shattering it on impact. That became part of the lore that followed Hunter. He figured, quote, what's the, what's the worst that could happen? They kick me out of the service? Technically, no. The worst that could happen is they could throw you in jail again. But Military jail. Yes. Because hey, yeah, you've always seen it like a TV and movies. You pull up to the checkpoint, show them your badge, salute them. They lay the thing. you Now nah, he just slowly checked it right in there, broke it, and then drove off. He decided to sign up for a night class at Florida State University. Uh, he thought a literary course would be fun. Maybe a psychology course. Him and the director of the education office got to talking. Quote, Know anything about sports? Sure. I was the editor of my high school newspaper. And he ad-libbed that he had covered high school sports for the Courier-Journal. It was a lie, but it worked. A few days later, he was on the command courier staff. The newspaper gave him as close to civilian-type freedom that a serviceman can get. He learned some newspaper lingo and threw around some cliches, and he fooled everyone. He wrote about everything from golf to little league games, and uh, the sports writing had a huge impact on his development as a writer. The centerpiece of the sports page, sports page was Hunter's Column, The Spectator. And it's where he could talk about and write about whatever he wanted. And it's where he would debut a technique that he would later use in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and pretty much every other story that he wrote. The fake editor's note. Hmm. Yes. Quote The spectator is on a well deserved three day pass. During his absence, Flotsam and Jetsam of the sports world found its way onto the sports te- spectator's desk. The courier staff put it together for your perusal. Peruse on us. It was also here where he developed another trademark, turning a minor subplot involving himself into the main story. Yeah, so when he didn't want to write a bunch or he didn't want to talk uh, about the things they wanted him to talk about, he would just write a fake editor's note saying, Oh, well, our sportsman is uh, sick or he's away, so we're just going to put this up, just put some notes up here real quick for you to read through, and that's it. And he does that for the rest of his life. It's really a, a, a cop-out. He's cutting corners. really. It's the lazy man's way of doing it. But it becomes one of the staples of his writing. That's how you knew it was Hunter S. Thompson when you saw the editor's note in the article. It's clever. It is. It's, 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 I told you, he's extremely smart. Now, The year he worked on The Courier, Hunter honed and tightened the craft. And as time went on, cliches were trimmed, and he rarely hesitated to unfurl his opinions in his column. He also laid out pages, fit headlines, took pictures. Being a sports writer meant traveling and getting off base and on someone else's tab. Hunter would do the majority of his traveling on someone else's tab for most of his journalism career. You'll see he takes uh, takes a lot of quote-unquote vacations on other people's tabs. And doesn't always write the piece he's supposed to. Go figure. <laughs> Uh, There was enough freedom in the job that Hunter and some of the other staff moonlighted for the Playground News, the weekly newspaper in Fort Walton Beach. Hunter liked to tell everyone that there was a no-moonlighting rule, and he had pissed off the superiors by breaking the rule. In truth, if you had permission from the top brass, moonlighting was fine. So I was like, I broke the rules. I went and did that. Everybody was like, you can do it. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Do what you want. Now, as time went on, Hunter began to tire of the military more and more. He was getting into more trouble and really pushing the boundaries with his freedoms, the job allotted. He did receive some good news that the Anthonyum was reinstating him as a member of the class of 1955, which did boost his spirits for a time. But his relationship with the Air Force spiraled downward. He decided at best to separate himself from the rest of the airmen and mostly his superiors, so he moved himself into a an abandoned beach house on the Gulf and named it Xanadu, after the pleasure dome of Coleridge's Kubla Khan. It's nice how you could just just one day while you're in the Air Force just go, I'm gonna live somewhere else.
1: Yeah, isn't that uh desertion?
0: Uh I guess as long as he showed up for roll call, I don't know.
1: I guess
0: so. At the time, Hunter was seeing a college girl by the name of Ann Frick, and he was pretty crazy about her, but being love-struck for one woman never kept and never will keep Hunter from finding a new woman to fall for at the same time. While at the bar, he met and began a romance with a former Illinois beauty queen named Craig Younger. She was married but separated and about 16 years older than him at 34, they spent two weeks together on the beach, and then she returned home to Illinois. She had an idea that Hunter wasn't the type to take a relationship too seriously. No matter how many letters he sent her stating the opposite. Quote, I don't think you have any idea who Hunter S. Thompson is when he drops the role of court jester. First, I do not live from orgy to orgy as I might have made you believe. I drink much less than most people think and think much more than most people believe. I am basically antisocial. All the while keeping up his relationship with Anne Frank. <laughs> Dude,
1: so, baby, that's share. not
0: me. Okay, it is me, but that's okay. not
1: me. You're only seeing one
0: side of me. Yeah, so there's other side. There's another woman on the other side, so you can't see that side. <laughs> now eventually, the superiors of the fort could see that Hunter wasn't exactly a lifelong military man. Quote, This airman, although talented, will not be guided by policy or personal advice and guidance. Sometimes his rebel and superior attitude seems to rub off on the other airmen's staff members. He has little consideration for military bearing or dress and seems to dislike the service and want to be out as soon as possible. And, of course, he did. But not with a dishonorable discharge. He was proud of his service in a way, and he felt the experience was good. Quote, I'm for the draft. I think everyone should be in the military. It civilizes the military. The honorable discharge was granted November 8, 1957, and Hunter, of course, used it as an opportunity to get in one last shot. On Eglin Stationery, am I saying that right, Eglin? Is
1: it E-L-G-I-N?
0: E-G-L-I-N, Eglin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you live down there, that's why I'm asking you. Eglin Air Force Base. Yeah. Yeah, okay. On Eglin stationery used for official press releases, Hunter wrote, quote, An apparently uncontrollable iconoclast, Thompson was discharged today after one of the most hectic and unusual Air Force careers in recent history. According to Captain Mungington third. I almost had a stroke yesterday when I heard he was being given an honorable discharge. It's terrifying. Simply terrifying. He added in a story about a riot that took place at Eglin where enlisted men attacked the women's quarters and the officers' mess, stole all the booze, got drunk as shit, attacked the women, and beat up the officers. Completely fiction, of course, but he still sent the release to friends and family, the Associated Press and left a copy on his commanding officer's desk and was sure to print it in the command courier before he jumped in his car and booked it like hell for the gates. Now, the question was, where to go from here? Uh, He could go towards St. Louis and Craig Younger. She lived in Collinsville, just east of the city in Illinois, which is down by us. Where I go get my wife's edibles,
1: And White Castle. And White
0: Castle, yes. <laughs> and, and he could try to get on the post-dispatch. It's a long shot. but Or he could go for the real prize, New York. Maybe college. He wasn't sure, so in the end he did what most of us do when we just aren't sure of what to do. He headed home. He would spend Thanksgiving in Louisville with his family. Didn't stay there long, though. He was able to find a writing job for $325 a month as a sports editor for the Jersey Shore Herald in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Pennsylvania, by the way. It is neither near New Jersey or any shore.
1: (laughs) It is the state of brotherly love.
0: Uh, Jersey Shore in Pennsylvania ...is in the middle of Pennsylvania. (laughs) He headed back east in early December 1957. He wouldn't last a month. Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania was a miserable little town in the mountains. Hunter regretted taking the job almost immediately. The worst part, he thought that there were no women to talk to that were either decent-looking or out of high school.
1: I was going to say, as soon as you said the worst thing, I was like, I bet there's no women. There's,
0: There's women, it's just they're all either too old or too young or too ugly. So, he buried himself in his work. He wrote about horse pulls and wrestling matches with Popo the Killer Jap and things like that. And he put a very serious tone on those types of things that were supposed to be more tongue-in-cheek things like quote people were carried out of the ring with broken backs his neck was broken in three places you know things like that uh there was only one person he could really stand in the whole town and it was a college teacher that also wrote for the paper on occasion now depending on what book you read some say it was the editor of the paper uh, others, uh, but that was based on friends. That was a uh, gonzo. It says he was the editor of the paper, but that's coming from friends who had talked to Hunter who liked to embellish. An outlaw journalist, he's known as simply as the poet, not given his name. Uh, and he's a teacher who works sometimes, writes sometimes for the paper. I lean more towards it being the poet than the editor. But So while the poet had a daughter, Hunter's age that was coming into town on the train and the poet asked Hunter if he would like to spend some time with her while she was there. Hunter was ecstatic. Finally, a pretty girl to talk to. Well, as the story goes, it was quite the downpour this whole week and many of the roads were covered in mud. The poet knew that Hunter's car would never make it anywhere, so he offered him his car for the evening. So, there they are, pulled into this side lane off a country road in the poet's car, making out for a while. Then, when Hunter goes to back out, car won't move. The car is stuck in the mud up to its rims. Well, Hunter leaves the girl in the car and walks over to a farmhouse. Hunter doesn't want to wake the farmer at two in the morning, so he checks the tractor the keys are in it. So, starts up the tractor and heads over to the car. He pulls up, wraps a, ra- a chain around the middle of the bumper, and backs up the tractor, tearing the bumper in half. Idiot. Well, about this time, the farmer's running down the street with a shotgun, trying to get the guy that stole his tractor. Hunter, always the charismatic one, convinced the farmer to not shoot him and instead helps him pull out the car. So the farmer jumps on the tractor and Hunter hops in the car to steer with the driver's side door open so he can better see behind him. (sighs) However, Hunter didn't take into consideration the tree on the driver's side of the car. (laughs) I saw that coming. The tractor pulled, car went backwards, The door went forwards, so now he has a car that isn't his, covered in mud, with the door half hanging off and the rear bumper split in two, also half hanging off. Hunter quickly drove her and the car back to the poet's house, where he parked the car, got into his car, and drove home. The next morning, Hunter went to work as usual, just another day, until a horrible screeching and grinding noise would heard coming down the street. Everyone at the paper looked out the window to see the poet driving a muddy car with a driver's side door and the rear bumper both scraping the road the whole way. Sparks flying. While everyone else went out to the back door to greet the poet and see what happened, Hunter grabbed a few items, went out the front door, and ended his job at the Jersey Shore Herald.
1: Thanks for letting me make (laughs) out with your daughter. Sayonara.
0: Oh, God. I laughed so hard when I read that one. Oh, fucking shit.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So. And he has no remorse. Uh, he, I mean, he has remorse. You're never going to get a real apology out of Hunter. He has remorse, but he has more fear for his life than remorse, so he takes off out of there. So, again, where does he go after that? Home. Uh, no. Only one place to go after something like that New York City. Oh. Uh, he called up an Air Force buddy named Jerry Hawk and said he needed a place to stay. Uh, Jerry lived with his brother Roger and their friend John Clancy near Columbia University. John Clancy will also be another big part of Hunter's life going on. Uh, when he gets up there, he does actually send back, go back for a very short period of time to get the rest of his stuff. But he does it covertly so nobody would see him because he knew he'd be in trouble if he got caught. Uh, Hunter was able to enroll in the School of General Studies at Columbia and take some courses. He didn't have to pay rent at the Hawks, but he did need to help take care of the house. He started signing up for book clubs, uh, like like Columbia House with CDs back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Uh, You get a certain amount for free, and then you have to buy a certain amount over the next year or so. Well, he would get these books and then never pay the club anything for the other books. They would send him letter after letter until he finally wrote them back, starting off very rationally, but gradually getting crazier and crazier, to the point where he ended up claiming that they owed him money, but he didn't want their money and they could keep it. After that, he never heard from them again.
1: Uh, How many CDs did you get for free and never pay for? I
0: never did, but my brother got he. My brother did the twelve CDs for like ninety nine cents, but you still got to pay for the shipping, and then he ended up buying because he's you know. My brother's the kind who's, he's not going to get a bunch of shit for free and then stiff the person he's, he's going to. You know, so he ended up buying the other CDs, but I never did it through them. I He would always get the ones from Columbia House for the CDs. I always got the ones because I was younger for Disney for the movies. And I always wanted to do those, but my parents wouldn't pay for the shipping and handling for all the fucking movies. Plus we already had most of the movies anyway. So did you ever do it? With yes. Club? Yeah. Did, did you ever buy the? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Hunter needed a job, so he put in many applications at various papers and ended up getting on as a copy boy at the Times. And this is where he would meet Gene Magar, another lifelong friend. It's amazing he was able to meet anyone since he was only there for a couple months before getting fired for going in drunk and insulting all of his superiors luckily the hawk brothers were good friends and didn't kick him out after that especially since he had made the neighbors there hate all of them he would throw garbage cans down the marble hallways to amuse himself with the racket pound on the door of the attractive women and terrorize the next <laughs> terrorize the next door chinese tenant with tirades <laughs> but eventually he found a new apartment with john clancy in greenwich village uh, it, it was an apartment By name alone. It was more or less the boiler room of an apartment building. Uh, You had to go over some rickety catwalk to a backyard, careful not to choke yourselves on all the clotheslines that were in the backyard, to get to a door, and once you opened it, all you saw was flames jumping off the wall because the door on the boiler itself was stuck partially open. The first door next to the boiler was was Hunter's apartment. They drank, smoked weed, and Hunter painted his entire room, wall, ceiling, and floor pitch black. The entire thing, pitch black.
1: Is John Clancy any relation to Tom?
0: No. I thought the same thing, but no. Now One one night, Hunter decides to go over to Gene's apartment on the Lower East Side. It was on the fifth floor. Uh, by some estimations, you had to take a ladder to get there, but I get it, it depends on whose story you believe. Uh, he never locked his door because he had nothing to steal. And as Gene put it, quote, if anybody actually wanted to climb those five flights, he deserved whatever he stole. Well, Hunter goes up there one night with a few other people, and Gene isn't there, so they let themselves in. He's sitting there drinking beers and talking, and at one point, Hunter gets up and takes off his belt. It's a hot summer night, and all the windows are open all over the block, and Hunter starts whipping the wall. He'd whip and scream, ah! Whip, ah! Whip, ah! Everybody on the... Are you okay over there? Yeah. Everybody on the block could hear it. Then he'd stop, and he'd yell, do it again! Do it again! Whip! You can't do that, you son of a bitch! The cops were called. They climbed up the five flights of stairs. They barge in. And everyone's sitting quietly at the kitchen table drinking beers. Gene was never treated the same by his neighbors again. the fuck? (laughs) That's another one where I'm reading it and I'm just... Tears rolling out my eyes because... Oh. And
1: yet, you you yell at me when you're standing outside with the dog, and I yell. It's
0: funny when other people do it. <laughs> That's not funny when we do it. But when you do it to me.
1: I have a sexy husband, or look at that ass, and you fucking yell <laughs> at me. Shut
0: the fuck up! Yeah. Uh, okay, now, one night, one hot summer night, Hunter, Gene, and two girls they were seeing. Gene uh, actually ends up marrying the girl who's with him. They went down to Le- to the uh, Leroy Street pool to swim. They hopped the fence, took off everything, and jumped in. A few minutes later, come about five guys saying that it was their turf, and started throwing the clothes in the water. So Hunter and Jean get out, fight them. The guys run off, but more and more jump the fence. If you listen to Gene's account, it was like 50 people, but I'm pretty sure he's over exaggerating. But it was too many for them to take. They were getting hit with fists, feet, and broken bottles. Luckily, girls ran off, and somebody called the cops. Hunter and Gene were taken to the hospital, where they literally had to hose off all the broken glass off of their bodies before they could treat the wounds.
1: And they fought naked.
0: Yeah. (sighs) Nothing came of it legally, but from that point on... Hunter carried a Bowie knife with him everywhere he went. But she'll have another run in the law where with the law where that Bowie knife comes into play. So now we come to this story that G- uh, Gene McGar tells us, and I'm just going to put it down exactly how he had it because it's pretty perfect. Quote, the day before he packed up and moved to Middletown, New York, which we will get to, he'd gotten some job as a sports editor at the Middletown Record. Eleanor and I, which is the girl who was actually with him the night that he ends up marrying, went down to see Hunter, and he had a girlfriend with him in his apartment. He was excited. It was the last night in the dungeon, and he decided to celebrate by jumping up and grabbing a sack of flour and doing a dance all around his black-painted apartment until it looked like fallen snow everywhere. Then we walked out the door. He says, come on, I gotta go get some stamps. And where he buys stamps is down at the Riviera. It's a little bar that was uh, a couple blocks away. So we step out onto the catwalk into the furnace room and there's this big bag of cement torn at the top just sitting there outside his door which really just looked like a bigger bag of flour. It was as though God wanted him to dance some more. Hunter grabs it, throws it onto his shoulder and heads down the street to the bar. I say, Hunter, what do you plan on doing with that cement? He just says, Stamps. I've got to have stamps. We get to the Riviera, and I say, Hunter, you going to go into that place with that bag of cement? Again, got to have stamps. I turn to my future wife and give her my watch and my rings. We open the door at the small end of the Riviera and march in. It's a Saturday night, so it's crowded. As we walk through the bar, silence. The whole goddamn place is quiet. Hunter gets to the middle of the bar, takes the bag off his shoulder, slams it onto the bar, and this kind of mushroom cloud of cement rises from the top of the bag. There are three bartenders on duty. There's a kind of middle-aged guy in the center, and the two, and the other two appear to be 25-year-old middleweights, one at either end. The guy in the center looks at Hunter in silence and finally says, You can't do this. Hunter says i want some stamps what do you mean and the guy just says you can't do this he's like a zombie staring at the bag hunter says come on now i see one of the middleweights coming around one end of the bar and the other middleweight climbing over the other end i say hunter they're coming for us let's get the fuck out of here he grabs the bag tilts backwards And some guy yells, My suit! My fucking suit, you son of a bitch! Then some lady screams, and general melee begins. Everybody heads for the door, only the door is at the narrow end of the bar, and it's like a mob trying to get out of a fire. Hunter and I get swept along with them, and the bag keeps getting jostled more and more, until finally it rips in half, and now everything's white. You can't see anything anymore. The stomping feet are sending the cement up into the air, the bag is in shreds, and we're lost in the fog. Everybody's still pushing for the door. It's a mob. Outside, Hunter's girlfriend and my future wife are standing in the doorway of the haberdashery across the street. They can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, sudden, they later said it was like something coming out of a cannon. This incredible explosion of white powder comes bursting through the door with arms and legs sticking out of it. Everybody emptied out onto the sidewalk and this stuff begins to settle On the two fucking middleweights. One of them chooses off Hunter. The other chooses off me. And the other people want to get in there and hit us. But one enormous guy takes control and decides to become the referee. And he insists on a fair fight. About three punches are landed. And then we hear sirens in the distance. We run like hell up 10th Street and down toward Hudson. And then sneak back over to Christopher to peer around the corner by the Riviera to see what's going on. The cops are there. People are brushing themselves off. And everybody's yelling and screaming. We all head to the bar about a block or two away, Hunter brushing himself off. Later that night, we're sitting at a place called the Kettle of Fish, and this black guy came over and said, I saw you. I saw you. That was the greatest thing i ever seen in my life. Hunter had been wearing a trench coat that night, and this guy hands Hunter one of the shoulder appulets that had gotten ripped off in the melee. The guy had saved it for him. Hunter and I had to stay out of the Riviera for quite a while. <laughs>
1: Uh, at least it was cement and not Coke.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Coke later on, not yet. <laughs>
1: uh. In late
0: 1958, Hunter lied in an application and accepted a job at the Middleton Daily Record in upstate New York. It was a fairly new paper with a young staff. He got rid of his old car and asked his mother for five hundred fifty dollars and bought a black fifty-one Jag. He almost immediately was in trouble after getting to town. He dined at a restaurant across the street from the record's office and offended the owner by repeatedly sending back his order of lasagna. When the owner asked him what was wrong, Hunter exclaimed, It's rotten! The owner attacked him with a wooden kitchen fork. The next day, he had to apologize to the owner in the publisher's office. This is where he met Bob Bone, yet another lifelong friend. But like normal, this job, too, wouldn't last long. Hunter refused to wear shoes in the newsroom. But what got him fired was the candy vending machine had stolen two of his nickels, so he kicked in the bottom tray and all the candy fell out. Now, Hunter only took the candy he paid for. The rest of the staff stole what they wanted, but Hunter still had to pay for the machine and all the stolen candy and was, of course, fired. With no money coming in, he had to give up his Middletown apartment and move to a cabin, or just a two-room shack, in nearby Cunabackville with unreliable heat and no electricity. It was here where he would need to make the decision. Either keep fucking around with newspapers and magazines, or finally take this whole writing thing seriously. He had always saved copies of his letters with carbon paper, messy stuff, and made self-portraits by setting the timer on his camera, so he decided to put them together in a sort of autobiography, and the idea for Prince Jellyfish was born. Now, in the summer of 1959, Hunter's longtime anthonyum friend Paul Seminin met and started dating Gene McGar's girlfriend's college roommate, Sandy Coughlin, Like, uh, Spaceballs. My <laughs> girlfriend's College roommates, brothers, cousins, uncle. To all accounts, Sandy was tall, thin, smart, blonde, and beautiful. And Paul made the obvious mistake of taking her around Hunter. Hunter used to escape to New York to spend drunken weekends with friends. Stories of things like Hunter having her rub powder on his back and shoulders on hot night while Paul had to sit there and watch are fairly common. Sandy knew something was there but never took the initiative on it until Christmas Eve that year. Her and Paul had broken up on good terms, and she was working at United Airlines. She had gotten a message that Hunter Thompson would like for her to call him. He was at Viking Press trying to get Prince Jellyfish published. She called him. She was very excited and tense. Hunter said, quote, Oh, hi, well, um, yeah, I don't really know why I called. Uh, I guess, uh, would you like to have a drink somewhere tonight? She was supposed to go to her father's for Christmas, so she said yes to Hunter. And called her father to let let him know that she would be late. She walked to a bar to meet, and she waited. 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 No Hunter. Just when she was going to give up, he called, said he would be late, Told the bartender to give her a drink, and he would get there when he could. About an hour later, he finally showed up. And immediately, there were sparks again. They would talk and drink, and she would call her father, said she would be late. Talk, drink, call her father. Talk, drink, call her father. Talk, drink, call her father. Finally, after a few hours, Hunter asked her to go to the cabin, and a strange thing happened. She said no. She grabbed the last train out of town and went to her father's. Quote, This was probably the highest I had ever been in my life. I was just so charged with this magic, this charisma, all these feelings. I was on top of the world. The next morning, I remember telling my father, I've met a wonderful, wonderful man. Hunter had asked her before she left if she would go out next time he was in town. She was certain he would flake, so she made dates for every night that week. No reason not to. Then in the middle of the week, about three in the morning, her phone rang. Quote, hi, well, I'll be in town later today. How about we get together tonight? She called all of her dates and canceled. And not like something came up, I can't come. She would call her dates and say, hey, I met somebody and I'm canceling our date. So she was very honest because she had the feeling that this was going to go somewhere. Yeah, that's who you're going to find out Sandy is. Sandy is a lovely person. Everybody loves Sandy. And the way Hunter ends up treating her is fucking horrible. They would spend the next seven days and nights in her tiny railroad apartment. Then he would leave for Puerto Rico. But for the better part of the next three decades, she would be Hunter's girl. And that's where we'll pick up for episode two. Of Hunter S. Thompson.
1: <sighs>
0: I told you it's going to be a ride. I told you. <laughs> he's, he's something else. He is. Wow. <laughs> the cement story. I lost it when I was reading it. Because I just imagine him leaning back. Cement poured all over him and whoever's behind him. Him turning real fast. It poured out on somebody else. I just <laughs> and Him just doing it on purpose with this face of, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just pouring out. Oh, sorry. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> just pouring out everywhere. Uh, I, I see it. it, it it's, I don't, that to me is fucking hilarious. So.
1: It's kind of like with our wedding invitations, how I purposely put a shit ton of glitter and uh, confetti <laughs> yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, I did it so whenever anybody opened their envelope, just it would just fall everything. out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everybody was messaging me like, you fucking bitch. Yes, and I, I was like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> Come to the wedding, though. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: Bring gifts. <laughs> Fuck you, fucker. Can I have stuff? <laughs> All right, Stacey. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, I called you. I tried to say like three words at the same time and it ended up coming out of Stacy. You are not Stacy, my wife Stephanie. Would you like to give everybody the social? I was trying to say Stephanie and socials at the same time, and I grabbed Steph and socials, and I said Steph, I said Stacy. <laughs> i am not
1: stacy and i do not have it going on
0: who are you again fuck you okay what's the social so everybody can get a hold of us
1: we are on twitter and instagram at OpenAFNBook, and, and i am at ecjbat
0: i'm young etam6 on twitter young etam on instagram i really gotta fucking change those stephanie what's our email do you know
1: at open, or we are. Open. <laughs> it's
0: open. See, see, it's not so easy, is it? You fuck up. I got time. it
1: right the last time. You open a book at gmail.com
0: Yes, and our Goodreads, since I kind of let you handle the Goodreads. What is our Goodreads?
1: goodreads.com backslash open
0: a book. Yep, and you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash open an effing book. Oh, no. open a effing book, not an. Don't put the n in there. A effing book. Uh, we got plenty of stickers left. All your donations go to help make this show better. I uh, got four tiers up there, I believe. And so there's a little something for everybody. Go to my wife's Etsy page at Etsy.com slash shop slash Stephanie Young Art. Uh, Stacey Young Art is probably something different. I don't know what will come up if you type that in. What?
1: I rolled my eyes yeah, so hard. <laughs> yes, yeah, she
0: did. I heard it. <laughs> All right. Uh, come back uh, in the middle of the week for our week- weekday Clip Notes episodes where we cover uh four books of the week fiction non-fiction children's books and ya novel
1: and books i'm looking forward to buying and books
0: that my wife's probably gonna buy while we're talking about them mm-hmm. and book news and whatever else tickles are fancy i suppose pickle, tickle 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 uh rate and review us wherever you listen uh wherever you are listening right now wait till the episode to get over and then subscribe follow rate review all that good shit Uh, Go to your library, your local bookstore, buy a book from a local independent author at an independent bookstore. It's really the best way to help them out right now with everything going on. And I
1: think that's it. I think that
0: is it. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and time, we get to talk to you again. Do yourself a favor.
1: Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys.